This morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most detailed historical accounts of a first century storm and shipwreck. The account that we're going to be looking at, we're going to see the forces of nature, we're going to see Satan at work, and I believe we're going to see God and his providence as well at work in this storm and this shipwreck. As many of you know, Mary and I lived in Seaside where uh, we ministered to the Lord for 10 years, Seaside, Oregon. And one thing about the summers that we really enjoy doing, that is the boys and I in particular, we like to go out to the South Jetty and there uh, we would go out and try to catch those salmons walking on those rocks and so forth. But one thing we did, whenever we would plan to go out there with our poles and all our gear, we would stop at the beginning of the jetty and they had the south jetty and they had the tower there. And we would go up into that tower and get up as high as we could, of course, and look out over there to see what the ocean was doing. And sometimes it was very, very calm. And therefore we knew it was okay to take that mile walk out there on those rocks and get out there where we like to fish for those salmon. There were other times that we would go out there and look, and we'd see the waves were rather rough, and they'd be hitting pretty hard against the rocks, but they really wouldn't be going over the whole thing. And so we'd think, have to weigh out, is it okay, is it safe to go out there? Because you see, if you hook up with a salmon, now you've got to go down to where the water is to be able to net it or to gaff it. And so that was a problem as well, and we always tried to weigh out whether it would be wise to be out there or not. And then toward the fall... As you probably know, the weather changes, the ocean changes, and we'd go out there and get in that tower. And I mean, at this point, the ocean was crashing wildly over the entire rocks, all the jetty, and obviously we wouldn't go out at that that point when it would be like that. There are also other times, I remember one time that uh, this guy wanted to take me out in his boat in the mouth of the Columbia River and fish for the salmon out there. And so I went out with him, and then something happened you never want to happen. And that is a fog just came and settled in over everything. I mean, we could not see any other boats. We could not see the shoreline. And one of the things you don't want to find yourself in when you're in a fog like that in the mouth of the Columbia River is you don't want to be in the shipping lane. Because that's where those ships come through. And suddenly we hear this low but loud horn. We know what it is. It is a ship that's in that lane coming our way. But we can't see. We don't know where he is. And by the way, we don't know in a sense where we are either. And so, man, you're scrambling like crazy to get out of there uh, for fear that that thing will run. And by the way, the brakes don't work too good on those ships out there in the ocean. That's a scary thing, a place to be when you're in that situation. Well, we find here that uh, Paul and his team, his group, were in such a storm that I talked about that hits the jetty at times, and uh, that was going to be one of those major shipwrecks that he was going to find himself in. One of the television programs that you might have uh, uh, seen before talks about some of the most dangerous uh, occupations, and one had to do with crabbing up there in the Bering Sea. And you probably have seen that. And again, I would not want to be on one of those boats in one of those storms in the Bering Sea. I mean, it is so dangerous and a lot of people lose their lives when they're in that situation. Well, this morning we're going to find ourselves on a ship in just such a storm. 
We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 27, so you might want to turn in your Bibles to that chapter. And W.H. Griffith Thomas says about Luke's account of this particular storm and shipwreck, he writes this, he says, The storm of the voyage is unusually detailed and graphic, testifying to Luke's opinion of its importance in the apostles' career. It is the most valuable document we of today possess concerning ancient seamanship, and it is also a striking illustration of the blend of natural and supernatural divine providence and human struggle that is so characteristic of life. End of quote. Boy, he's right there. If such an experience were to take place today, I imagine that uh, uh, Paul and Dr. Luke would be asked to be on every talk show on television. In fact, I imagine they would be offered the movie rights or they'd be able to sell them uh, because of this incredible account that we read there in chapter 27. Back in Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord had appeared to Paul and told him that he had to witness to his cause in Rome as he had also done in Jerusalem. And uh, now, after six trials and several months later, Paul finds himself on board a large sailing vessel heading toward Rome. Would you turn me down just a little bit, please? I have, a, I hear a little echo here, and I wanted to get that out of there. And you might remember that Festus was a governor there in Caesarea, and, and uh, he had held uh, Paul in incarceration for two years. And uh, what Festus wanted to do, he said, well, Paul, would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem with me and stand trial before me there among the Jews? And Paul realized that if he would do this, that the Jews would attempt to assassinate him. They already had a plot to do that beforehand. And so he said no, and he did. The only thing that was allowed him to do as a Roman citizen, and so he took the recourse of appealing to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so now there was a problem that Festus, the governor, had. Because here was Paul who said, I appeal to Caesar, therefore he had to allow him to go to Caesar, but he also had to explain what he was guilty of. Now that was a problem for Festus because he knew after two years of often talking to Paul, he was guilty of nothing. Well, fortunately for him, Herod Agrippa II, who is married uh, to Bernice, he happened to be paying him a visit. And so Festus said, ah, you know, you're Jewish. You've got Jewish blood in you. Maybe you can help me out. Would you listen to Paul as he shares his defense, and then maybe you can help me find out uh, something to write down to Nero, because that was a pretty dangerous thing for a governor to send a prisoner off to Nero when there was no crime against him and him being a Roman citizen. So uh, Paul was willing to do that, and he gives his defense before Herod, Agrippa, and Bernice, and Festus, and all the others are quite an entourage of people there. You might remember an act that brings that out. And uh, the conclusion to Herod was, listen, this guy should be set free. I mean, there's no reason at all uh, why he should be sent on to Nero. And that brings us to Dr. Luke's account here in Acts 27. And as you will notice, the title of the message is Weathering the Storms of Life. I've been around long enough to know that every Christian finds themselves in major storms at times. And I'm sure we could spend all morning just giving testimonies from you of things that you've gone through or you're going through. Uh, and uh, not only that, with those storms often comes shipwrecks. 
as well. And that's why I wanted to go back to this passage that we have before us. And in your outline, we're going to give a blow-by-blow account of the voyage. Now, you can say that's a pun and play on words with the wind, a blow-by-blow account if you want. But uh, we're going to go through chapter 27 first just by a blow-by-blow account of the voyage. Because this is a narrative, I'm going to give a verse-by-verse rundown of Luke's account, and then we're going to go back and extract some principles that we can apply to our daily living. And dear ones, we all need them. This is really valuable for me, valuable for you as well. Let's begin with verse 1, chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, the first thing you should notice in this verse is the little pronoun we. We. Uh, Because the last time that pronoun we appeared in Luke's writing of the gospel or the book of Acts was back in chapter 21, verse 1. So, Dr. Luke is now with Paul again. That's what you need to see. Dr. Luke is aboard this ship with him. He's going through everything that Paul is going through. And it's interesting that back in chapter 21, uh, Paul and Dr. Luke once again found themselves on another boat in the Mediterranean Sea. This time it didn't get into a storm or sink, but it's very interesting to me. And then secondly, Julius, we find, was a centurion, meaning that he had a 100 soldiers under his charge. And being of the Augustan cohort or order, he must have been especially assigned to the emperor. So he's a very significant, important person that's a hit on this ship as well. And so Paul here is the lowest of the low when it comes to who all is on the ship. He, however, was not the only prisoner. We're told there are many others as well. Now to verse 2. We read there, And embarking on an Adramatan ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So, they sail from Caesarea, having found this ship from Abdramatin, that's up above Ephesus, by the way. And these ships, though, were coastal vessels that pretty much hugged the coastline, the shoreline, and really didn't venture out into the open seas. We call them port hoppers, is what they were. And you realize there were no passenger ships back in that day. There were warships and cargo ships. That's all they had. No passenger ships. Now, we also learn that Aristarchus, one of Paul's converts from Thessalonica, also joined them on this particular voyage. Now, verse 3. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So this is the second day. They're in the port in Sidon, about 70 miles north by sea. By the way, it's really helpful to get a map out and see where this is on your map. And Julius the centurion allows Paul to leave the ship and visit with some of the believers who lived in that city. Now, I would imagine probably a soldier also accompanied Paul, since he was going there, but uh, along with Luke and Aristarchus. And this really tells us something, I think, about Paul. I mean, to think that this centurion would allow him that freedom to 
go and uh, visit with believers there when he was a prisoner. And I can't but wonder but what, and I'm pretty sure I'm accurate on this, that Julius, that centurion, was there in Caesarea when Paul gave his defense and probably understood that probably there was no reason for Paul to even make this trip because he really was innocent. But we also learned something else here. Those words, receive care, in verse 3. Luke is a doctor. He's writing this account. Those are medical words. I think that's interesting. It tells me that Paul was probably sick. Now, what he's getting into is really something else, and God's going to allow it. And yet here, this guy is not feeling very well, if we might say that. Now, verses 4 through 6. From there, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. Well, here we leave Sidon. We sail around the north side of Cyprus, headed to Myra, a port on the south part of Asia Minor. And by the way, a sailing distance, so about 350 miles. So it took a while to get there, 350 miles of sailing there in the ocean. It was here that Julius found this Alexandrian cargo ship loaded with wheat. We find that out later on, headed for Rome. And so he and his party boarded it. Now in verse 37, you're going to find out that there were 276 people aboard that ship. Look around you. There are not 276 people in this auditorium. So there are even more than are here were aboard that ship. And uh, verses 7 and 8 next, going on with the account here. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived at Snidus, since a wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So from Myra, they attempt to make their way to Snidus, staying very close to the shoreline, the coastline. But Luke tells us they sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty they arrived off Snidus. From Snidus, the winds were too strong to continue due west. So they turned and went south down around the eastern side of the island of Crete and landed in the port of Fair Havens. Now verses 9 through 13. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to the men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When the when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. We're not told how long they stayed here at Fair Havens, but Luke described it as a considerable time. And another concern is noted there. What is that? Well, this was not a suitable place to spend the winter. 
And so, and, we, and then we also find out that the fast, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, had already passed. This was AD 59. Yom, Yom Kippur fell on October 5th. And listen, from November 11th to the end of March, nobody crossed the Mediterranean Sea. Nobody. The winds were extremely strong and the sea extremely rough. It was a gamble even to sail in the open seas from September 14th through November 11th. Now they knew that. A very dangerous time on the Mediterranean. Now Paul had been on a lot of ships. On three of them, they had sunk. How about that? Now you think God has it in for you. I mean, you think about that. Three, uh, several different ships he was on, but three of them God allowed to sink. He tells us about that in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And he really didn't have a desire to be on a fourth one that was going to sink. I agree with him. I agree with him. It's understandable, too, that the centurion would more readily listen to the pilot and the captain of the ship uh, than he would a prisoner. But the real reason for leaving was that it was a terrible harbor to have to winter in, and the majority ruled, and the decision was made. I, by the way, I got to bring this out, and that is verse twelve. These words, if somehow they could reach Phoenix and spend the winter there, are some of the. This is a key verse for many of our people right here. Did you know that? Yeah. I think the dead and Lorraine Nimitz are a couple of them. Uh, probably you guys are a couple of them as well. And I know that Jeff and Patty, they've already made their way down to Phoenix to winter the, down there. You know, So I think that must be one of their key verses, verse 12 of chapter 27, if you please, there. And, and by the way, Phoenix was only 40 miles west by northwest of Fair Heavens. It wasn't very far away. Not that far to sail to. And notice... How convenient that a moderate south wind came up to help confirm their decision, so off they sailed. I bring that out because a lot of the decisions we sometimes make, what convenience is there to help us make those decisions, and yet we find ourselves in a storm and even in a shipwreck. We come now to verses 14 through 44. Before we get into them, I want to say this. Dear ones, you and I need to find and see ourselves out there on this ship with Paul and Dr. Luke and the rest of them in this storm and even in this shipwreck. It's so important you see yourself there when you think about your journey to heaven. Verses 14 through 17, let me read them at this time now. But before very long... There rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uriquillo. That's a northeaster. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, we were scarcely able to get the ship's skiff, the little boat there, under control. And uh, verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables to in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. We now read of the horrific storm at sea and the struggle for every person aboard that ship to stay alive. This is a fierce Gale, 
a very, very severe storm that has hit them. They're, they're out there in this fierce gale with huge waves. You gotta see it. They're crashing over the whole deck. One of those old ships back in that day. And all they can do is let the storm and wind drive them. And that's what's happening. We're told that they're towing this fairly good-sized skiff, evidently, that they used to get from island to island when they get near one. And they nearly lost that. And so they're struggling out there in the storm, trying to get that aboard the ship so they don't lose it. And uh, this storm is so bad that they have to hang on for dear life as they try to get cables, probably ropes, around the uh, bow of the ship and bring it down and be able to cinch it together for fear that it's going to be blasted and battered apart. It's that bad. This is just not a storm you want to find yourself in. But that's exactly where they find themselves. And uh, they also know if the storm drives them onto the shallows of Sirtis, that's south, and so that must have been where they're being pushed. Its reef would tear the ship apart. And so they throw out their anchors in the hopes of keeping them off their reefs. This is a terrible, terrible storm. Listen, even the toughest soldiers who had no problem going into hand-to-hand combat and fighting for their lives and killing the enemy were scared to death. This during this storm. I mean, they were tossed around like a cork on that wild raging sea out there. And it was just a moment by moment for fear that they're going to be cast off the ship and lose their lives. Or the ship would be broken up and they would lose their lives that way. Verses 18 through 20. By the way, can you see yourself in such a storm? Some of you, you say, I sure can. I know exactly what you're talking about. Not on the ocean necessarily, but the storms that you're presently going through. You understand the reality, and that's why we're looking at this text this morning. Look at verses 18 through 20 now. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. That's 24 hours later. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. I mean, they all lost hope. They thought, this is it. This is where we end our physical lives. And you know what? I'm I'm sure they were saying, surely this storm will let up. At least a little. After all, God's man is aboard this ship. There were at least three redeemed people aboard this ship. Surely God would care and this storm would let up. But that's just not the case. That was not the case. It got a whole lot worse. Keep that in mind. It got a whole lot worse. And then God puts Paul in charge of the ship. With the angry, raging storm nearly destroying the ship and every life aboard, God got the attention of all 175 men and women, if there were women aboard that ship. And, of course, he already had Paul's attention, as we know. Having gotten everybody's attention, God now puts Paul in charge. Isn't that something? That's what he's going to do. He's going to put Paul completely in charge of that ship and everybody aboard it. First, there's that gentle admonition. Don't misread that in verse 21. Neener, neener, I told you so. That's not the point there, okay? Verse 21, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in the midst and said, Men, 
You ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. That is the key. God says, I want you on board this ship, both the centurion, the soldiers, and the, the ship's master, the captain's force, to pay attention to this man. He knows what he's talking about. I have put him in charge. And so there is the first, that gentle admonition. So the ship's, ship's officers, its sailors, the centurion understand that God did know what he was talking about. There comes a point when God says, I want the people around you to know that you know what you're talking about. About salvation, about world conditions, about where we're headed. And he'll do that. And here we see that's exactly what he did. Second, Paul gives everybody aboard a ship some encouragement and assurance. Look at verses 22 through 26. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Remember, they're out there in a terrible, rough, treacherous storm. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. That is amazing. God, he's, he's telling God's hand is on my life, and he's got plans for me, and he told me that I'm going to fulfill those plans. And by the way, Paul, I'm also going to give you every single person's life aboard this ship as well. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then, thirdly, God uses Paul to stop a desertion. So it will be very clear to everyone that this miraculous deliverance of all those on board was a result of Paul's God, the one true God. Verses 27 through 32. But when the 14th night, think of that, 14 nights, day and night in this horrific, terrible, destructive storm. Waves crashing over the bow, crashing over the whole ship. When the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took surroundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little further on they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that they might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship that had uh, and uh, the ship, and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "Now this is this is significant." He said to them, "Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved." Isn't that something? They're going to escape. By the way, God could have got rid of that skiff a long time ago. At the beginning, we read that. Instead, they're able to salvage that and get it aboard. And now they're going to use it. And again, God is going to put Paul in control, absolute control. He says, listen, if you allow them to do this, then your lives will not be saved. I mean, he's got their absolute attention. And they're, 14 days now, they're scared to death. And yet they're seeing that God has put this man in control. And they better, listen, listen, here's the key. They had better listen very carefully to him. Is that not what God, where God puts you and me? that the world had better listen very carefully to the message that he wants them to hear through you and me. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. I mean, you talk about an act of faith there. 
I mean, if they didn't really believe Paul, they would never have cut that little skiff away. They would have said, we'll use that that we might escape. And then fourth, just as Paul prophesied, the ship was broken up and everyone got safely to shore, God causing the centurion to overrule the soldiers who wanted to kill all the prisoners, verses 33 through 44, until the day was about to dawn. Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. For this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. That's an idiom. This means nobody's going to perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the island, but they did observe a bay with a, be- with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they let them uh, let them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and some on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Fourthly, just as Paul prophesied, the ship was broken up, but every life aboard was saved. They all got safely to shore, God causing the centurion to overrule his soldiers in their desire to kill the prisoners. Well, we begin now, what's this all about? We begin with the next major movement I want you to look at. Why there are shipwrecks, actually you could say storms and shipwrecks, when we belong to God. We start there. Why there are storms and shipwrecks when we belong to God. I came up with at least five reasons from Scripture. Five reasons from Scripture. First, they come because of satanic activity. Job is a good example of that. We know that Job was never told of the conversation between God and Satan. And yet look what happened to him. What was the conversation all about? What did, Job, what, did, what, did, what did Satan say to God? He said, I'll tell you why Job and anybody else worships you. They worship you because of what they get out of you. You put a hedge around him. You blessed him. I mean, he's got a wonderful family. He's got wealth. He's got health. He's got position. And that's why people worship you. And God says, no, they worship me because I am worthy to be worshipped. And so the contest began, and you remember, he lost all ten of his children. Don't forget, his wife lost ten children as well. Lost them all. 
Then he lost all of his wealth, his livestock and so forth. And then he lost his health next after that. And after that, there was, he lost in a sense his friends as well. All alone out there to verify that God says, I will let Satan at you for a reason. And that is to show that I am worthy to be worshiped no matter what comes into your life. Isn't that true, dear ones? It may take us a while to come around, but even after all the storms and after our ship is broken up and we find ourselves floating out there like a court on a wild raging sea, yet our heart still cries out, God, I love you. I'm going to hang on to you no matter what. Even if I go down into the depths of Sheol, as David said, I belong to you. For one reason then, By the way, the same thing happened to Peter. Remember what Jesus said to him? He said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, which is the name for Peter. He said, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I wonder if he ever asked permission to sift you, me, like wheat. I'd rather he didn't ask. But in Peter's case, he did. And Jesus says, what I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we see one of the reasons is they come, these storms, these shipwrecks, because of satanic activity. Number two, they come because God desires to speak to others. God desires to speak to others. God does it. God does at times take us through storms for the sake of others. Again, Paul shares that with us in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, our storms, our shipwrecks, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Think about David. What storms he went through. Did you know nearly half of those psalms that you and I love and treasure and they speak to our heart and minister to us were written by David? And so God allowed him to go through those storms and his ship to be wrecked that we might be encouraged and he could speak to us through that. And then this storm here. Did you know, dear ones, there are 274 people, actually 273 people above that, on that, board that ship. And I would almost suspect that there were 273 people that got saved because of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus being on that ship in the midst of that storm and the ship being battered and torn to shreds. And later on the island of Malta, there was going to be a a great number of people coming to saving faith as well. So listen, God allows storms that he might speak to others. Number three, God desires, he allows these storms and shipwrecks because he desires to strengthen and build godly character. I'm not sure that we're all so comfortable with that. He allows storms and shipwrecks because God desires to strengthen and build godly character. Remember James, the half-brother of Jesus? He says, consider it all joy. Wow. My brother, when you encounter various trials, what's that? Storms. Shipwrecks, knowing what? That the testing of your faith, can you finish it? 
produces endurance. I don't want to endure. I want to float along on calm seas. Do a little fishing on the side as well. No, he says it produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. He said it came by way of Satan to buffet him. And he says, I told God, just take this away. Just get me back to shore. Off of this boat, out of this storm. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. You know, way too many of us are way too strong. But power is perfected in weakness, he said. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses, my storms, my shipwrecks, if you please, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So God desires to strengthen and build godly character, so he allows storms and shipwrecks in your my life. Number four, he allows them because God desires to reveal himself and display his glory. Yeah. God wants to reveal himself to a lost world. Maybe to his own people that they might find joy and encouragement and strength. And so God desires to reveal himself and display his glory. You remember the fellow that was born blind and Jesus and the disciple walk along and he sees him and his son, well, well, who sinned? I mean, he's blind. Master, it's because he sinned to his parents and, which is an interesting theology on their part. And uh, what did Jesus say? He said, neither. No, he's blind for the glory of God. And then he touches him, and you know, he was watching the pool of Siloam, and he comes back seeing. And what a remarkable uh, event happened there in that synagogue as the leaders confront him about who did this to you and so forth. And then that wonderful uh, discourse on, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd, and these are my sheep, and they hear my voice, and so forth. All because God wanted to display His himself and his glory. Remember, he allowed Martha and Mary. Now, he knew that their brother Lazarus was sick unto death. All all he had to do is but say the word. He didn't even have to go. Or he could have hurried up and got there before Lazarus died. But then he says, as he goes out there and says, remove the stone. And Martha says, by this time, he master, he's been dead for four days. I mean, he's decaying. He said, do not say, if you would believe, you would see what? The glory of God. The glory of God. And so God says, I allow these storms. I, I permit them. And even shipwrecks that I might... Reveal myself and display my glory. And then there is number five. God allows the shipwrecks and the storms, uh, storms and shipwrecks because God desires to correct our behavior. We can't leave that one out, can we? He wants to correct our behavior. Boy, a good old, old testament example of that is Jonah. Now we find ourselves on another ship out of the Mediterranean, and this guy is running from God. He's disobedient, and he's running from God, and what does God do? He allows a storm to come up. Now, obviously, you know the story, they have to throw him overboard, and the fish gobbles him up, and for three days and three nights he's in the belly of that fish, thinking, you know, maybe it'd be good for me to repent. Maybe it'd be good for me to get right with God. Then the the fish says, I can't stomach these Christians to get right with God. And and up he comes, you know. God used him. 
Peter puts this fifth reason God desires to correct our behavior into a um, um, a biblical principle, why there are shipwrecks and uh, storms when we belong to God. And here's his biblical principle. He writes, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Wow. You mean he brings storms and shipwrecks? So that I'll stop living in sin, deliberately doing my thing instead of obeying Him. Yeah, that's what He says. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. What is that? Having pursued a course of sensuality. Isn't that our world today? Lust. Drunkenness. Carousing. Drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In other words, God says, I desire to correct your behavior. And I will use storms and even shipwrecks to get you to walk with me. God is telling you it's time for you to stop living in sin, for me to stop living in sin, to repent and to begin living for Him. That's what He's saying. And if you're right now in a storm or the next time you find yourself in a storm, stop, dear one, and ask yourself, God, why have you allowed this storm? Why have you allowed this shipwreck to come upon me? Is it because of the fact that this is satanic activity? Is it because you desire to speak to others through me and through this storm? Is it because you desire to strengthen and build my character within my walk with you? Is it because you want to reveal yourself and display your glory? Or is it because you desire to correct behavior in my life? Stop and ask God, Lord, why have you allowed this storm into my life? That brings us to a next major movement in our text, weathering the storms of life. When God brings a storm your way, He provides others to encourage. When God brings a storm your way, He provides others to encourage. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Luke and Aristarchus chose to be on this ship with Paul. Now that's an unusual thing, that a governor would allow a prisoner to have two other people alongside. It's thought that maybe they went as Paul's slave. That way they could go. It's thought that maybe they were allowed to go because Festus realized, man, I'm sending this prisoner to stand before Nero and I can get myself in trouble. Maybe I need to have favor with Paul. So yes, I will let Dr. Luke and Aristarchus go with him. But the point is God provided somebody to encourage Paul. Frankly, I'm not sure I want to be on that trip to encourage him in that terrible storm. But God did allow that for him, and we're thankful for that. Have you thought about the depth of those words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12? He writes, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's what he said. If you're suffering... He said the whole body then is suffering as well. We need to understand that. We need to know that. And he says, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Listen to this. Brotherly love is not a question of feeling. It's a question of sacrifice. Let me say that again. Brotherly love is not a question of feeling. It's a question of sacrifice. 
extending yourself to meet the needs of somebody who's going through a storm, seeing that their ship is battered or even broken apart. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us, remember what he said to the reading, he said, encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day drawing near. What happened up there in Burlington? What's happening in our nation? What's happening throughout the whole world right now? Are you not seeing that day drawing near? And by the way, we have brothers and sisters who are losing their lives. They are being incarcerated. And we need to bear their burdens and encourage them in prayer and in any other ways that we possibly can. That's the day we're living in right now. On Friday... I had the opportunity to go visit Verna Gilboa. Verna, you may not know this, but I walked out of there with an uplifted heart because you said to me as I walked out, just pastor, I just want you to know that every night I pray for Pastor Bill and Mary. I need that. Mary needs that. And that just lifted my heart and encouraged me. And we need that praying for one another. That's a way to lift up and encourage each other's heart. You may have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I need somebody to come into my life and encourage me, a brother or a sister. And you may have to reach out to them. I'm sorry, but that sometimes is the case as well because you're going through a storm or your ship has been broken up. And listen to this. According to James 5, it says, when you find yourself that way and you can't even lift your hands anymore, then call for the elders to come and lift up your hands and strengthen in you. That's what the Bible says. And we need to practice that. These storms are very real. They are destructive. They destroy the little ship or boat you're on. And you find yourself gasping for air, hoping to somehow survive. And dear ones, we need one another. And then finally, a third point in your outline God comes in man's absolute helplessness and announces who he is. I want you to see that. God comes in man's absolute helplessness and announcing who he is. They had lost all control of the ship. They were in a terrible storm being tossed around, waves crashing over the top of the ship, their cargo gone as a last resort to save themselves. They had no lights to see with, it says, and no navigation system to rely upon, no compass, no GPS, no stars, no moon, and during the day, no sun. Terrible time, terrible storm. They were absolutely desperate for help. As verse 20 says, and don't miss it, All hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. That was in the heart of Paul and Aristarchus and Dr. Luke as well. Paul thought, this is it. I'm going home to be with the Lord. I'm about to drown. Amazing. It wasn't just for those 273 passengers. It was also Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus' conclusion as well. Well, God comes in man's absolute helplessness and he announces who he is. You know, Abraham and Sarah were going to have a baby and here they are getting older and older. And it's like, God, where are you? I mean, you told me this. By the way, he's told me he's coming back to take us out of here. You know what I'm saying? God, where are you? Let's bring it on. 
I'm going to be going through the books of Jude and Second Peter, and I'd encourage you to start reading them over and over again. It's amazing. It says one of, one of the keys for the church is to be expecting that God will do what He said He will do, just as He has done in the past. And so He puts on hold for Abraham and Sarah, and they're waiting and thinking, where is he? What's going on? And yet God answered his, he fulfilled his word there, did he not? And then I even think, for example, of Joseph and all the terrible storms that God put him through and the shipwrecks he put him through, and yet he gave him those two dreams. But I'm sure he gave up on those dreams a long time ago, and God said, I haven't. I haven't. I will come when you are absolutely helpless, and I'll announce to you who I am. And he did that for Joseph. I think of even Moses. And he thought he was going to deliver the people of Egypt, and things went wrong, and he found himself fleeing from uh, from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and for 40 years on the backside of that Midian desert out there, and yet God came to him. I think of Esther and the Jewish people about to lose the whole Jewish race. I mean, uh, Haman was going to kill him off. He'd even set the date, got permission from the king, and it looked it looked hopeless. I mean, you talk about being out on a ship and terrible storm, and you're about to lose a ship. It's going to be destroyed. That's where Esther was, and God says, "Now I will step in and I will display the glory of my person and show you I always keep my word." Dear ones, every believer is going to get safely to heaven. Come on, Amen. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God confirms his man, his woman, who he's going to use. There we saw that in verses 21 through 37. Paul establishes his credibility. God declares the presence of God to those on board that ship. And Paul declares the plan of God to those on board. I mean, it's an amazing thing. He says, look, the ship is going to get piled up, but every single person is going to be saved. And that's exactly what happened. They were ready to listen to this man. They're ready to hear the message he had to share with him. God really does confirm you when you walk in his will. And like Paul can say, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. (laughs) He starts the trip as a prisoner. He ends up being absolutely in control of everybody aboard that ship and afterward as well. What did James say? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Boy, not only for Paul, but for you and me as well. And then finally, in your outline, how important this is. I I should spend more time on it. The world little knows how much they owe those who belong to God. They have no use for you and me as believers. They little know how much they owe to you and me who belong to God. Look at verse 24 and mark that. This angel said to Paul, verse 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. That's something. God says, I'm going to save all of them. I'm going to do it because of who I am and who you are. You'll save them all. Abraham reminds me of Abraham pleading with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. If there are even ten people, would you spare it? And dear one, if there was ten people, he would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think about sparing the United States of America. 
and just how important then you and I, the redeemed, are. I think of that Our Daily Bread, and I tried to find it again. I couldn't where uh, this, uh, I believe it was a, a lady lost her, her godly husband. She said, the world has lost a godly man, and it hardly, it, it can ill afford to lose such a righteous person. And that's true. That's true. Boy, he says, I use you to restrain the wickedness and the evil in the world. He's not using the world to do that. He's using you and me. How amazing. Moses intercede for the rebellious Israelites when God told him to stand aside. I'm going to destroy them all. I'll start with you a new nation. He said, oh God, listen, you can't do that. And he argues with God and God refrained from destroying them. He used Moses to intercede there. I think about those going through storms and shipwrecks and then you at the workplace, perhaps school and your family and your community and God uses you and me and works in their heart and life because of it. I believe, dear ones, today the church, meaning all the genuinely saved, is used by God the Holy Spirit to restrain the evil in this world. When we are taken out of here, when the great rapture occurs, and I think that's very soon now, this world little knows just how dark and evil it's going to become here upon the earth. It will be unbelievable. Talk about a storm. I think of Satan's hour will finally have come. Listen to God's words in Romans 9, 22 through 24. He says, Paul writes, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and then make his power known, he says, I'm willing to do it, and I'm going to do it on this earth. But he says, endured, rather, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Amazing. And why? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's you and me and the others he's going to save, which he prepared beforehand for his glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God says, listen, it's interesting. The world has been trained to save the world, right? Global warming and so forth. And it's amazing to me because God's plan is to destroy the whole thing. We should be good stewards, so don't misunderstand. But it's interesting. They're moving, they're moving that direction, and God says, I'm going to obliterate the, I'm going to destroy the whole thing. But right now I was restrained from doing that because of you, of the ones I'm going to save. But dear ones, scripture makes it very plain. Time is now running out. And God is going to step in. You know the book of Revelation. You'll understand very clearly. Time is running out. And very soon God will take us out of here. Satan's hour will be here. And for one or for seven years, I'm sorry, it will be hell on earth here upon the earth. And the stage has already been completely set. Amazing. Weathering the storms. Shipwrecks. I'm going to conclude with this story and you know it well. Jesus took the disciples, he's on a hillside, and the people have been following him for three days, and he said, they're hungry, and he said, you need to feed them. They said, with what? And this little boy came along, you know the story, he had five little flat loaves of bread, and he had two fish, that was a small lunch. Jesus took that, kept breaking it, kept breaking it, and he fed over 5,000 people. At that time, they said, whoa, we want this guy to be king, and he wasn't going to allow that, you know that story. That evening, after a long day, 
He said to the disciples, you get in the boat, you go across Galilee, I think it's going to Capernaum. He stayed behind to pray. I think it's interesting. He's on the shoreline, it's dark now, maybe there's a moon out, I don't know. He sees him about four miles out there in the middle of Galilee, and the, the sea out there, and they're being storm-tossed. And he sees him, it says it. I like that. He's on land, they're in the boat, terrible storm, they can't make any headway, he sees him. And then he comes walking on the sea, and he acts like he's going to pass him. And you know why? Because he wants them to invite him to come in. I think how interesting that Jesus, you sent them out there in the ocean, knowing that they're going to find themselves in the middle of a storm. And then you come. I don't know what storm you may be going through. Maybe your ship has already sunk. For some of you, you can say, I can testify, that's exactly where I've been. But God is with you. You invite Him in your boat, or in the water with you, He is with you, and He sees you through that storm. I told you, He gets us all safely home to glory. Go back and review those five reasons why He allows storms and shipwrecks to come in your my life. And say, oh God, teach me, show me. I just want to be in your hands in the midst of this storm. Would you do that? Pray for one another, encourage each other, because that's the journey every one of us are on. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allowed Paul to go through another storm and shipwreck. To me, it's incomprehensible for a man to be out on that one of those ships for 14 days and nights, waves crashing over the top of the boat, barely holding it together, not even being able to navigate and direct it to any particular place. It's really in your hands wherever that ship was going to light. But you drove it right to the very island you wanted it to go to. That's, that's an incredible God that I belong to and serve. And Satan will, as you said, Lord, he will bring storms. He delights to bring storms and destroy ships. But how I praise you that the precious cargo, the people aboard those ships, precious in your sight, you will never forsake them, but rather you'll be with them in the storm. You will provide for them. You'll give them your peace. You will see them safely through. And Lord, you'll get the glory and the praise, and they will be the better for it. And Lord, I uphold those people that I know are going through deep storms right now. Maybe they already are bobbing around in a wild, turbulent sea, no longer aboard the ship because it's been destroyed. I pray, Lord, you'll get them safely to shore, and I know you will. And they'll give glory and praise to you for doing that. This really is a great salvation. And Father, that kind of a storm is nothing compared to being out there without you. And I pray for any person who's here this morning that's name is not written in that Lamb's book of life. They're not redeemed. They're not saved. They're not been forgiven. They don't have eternal life. They're not clothed with your righteousness. They're not in you, Christ. I pray that they would put their faith in you this morning, that even now they'd say, oh, I want to be a Christian. Even if it means terrible storms and shipwrecks, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. Lord, you got the attention of 276 
people aboard that ship, and they heard the message you wanted them to get, receive. And many of them came to Saving Faith. May that happen this morning as well here. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.